Honestly, uh, as we are continuing uh, looking at what the Holy Spirit does, and uh, we've talked about the uh, fact that the names that are used, the words that are used for the Holy Spirit, signify uh, uh, exerting the influence, exerting the influence of God, applying the power, applying the influence of God in order that whatever it is God wants done uh, is done by the uh, exercise of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about uh, that he accomplished his will. For example, in the creation, his part in the creation, that would not fit under revelation, it wouldn't fit under confirmation, but it would be a matter of uh, executing the Father's will. Uh, we talked about episodes like Samson. Uh, even though there would be a sense in which that might be confirmation, primarily it was in order that God might deliver Israel from the Philistine oppression. And so the Spirit uh, gave Samson his miraculous strength in order that he could do that. And we use the example of the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, Luke 135. And then we concentrated very much on the revelation of the Word, the will of God, and the confirmation of that Word. Now that's what we really talked about yesterday in particular. And so today, we're ready to go to the idea that is found in Romans 8, 26 and 27, that the Holy Spirit uh, intercedes for us. So we need to look at that, and this is not going to be a major emphasis, but it is something that we need to look at. Uh, Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, And in like manner the Spirit helpeth, also helpeth our infirmity, for we know not how to pray. Uh, as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now the first thing to note is that the word used for intercession in verse 27 is the same word used in verse 34. So the term used for intercession is the same. Uh, in reference to the Holy Spirit and in reference to Christ as well. But the intercession of the Spirit differs radically from the intercession of Jesus because the intercession of Jesus is the intercession of one who essentially is functioning as priest for us and functioning as a priest offering a sacrifice, the sacrifice being himself. So he intercedes for us in that he appears before God as the high priest offering the blood of the sacrifice. So the assistance that Jesus gives us is that of the priest who is interceding for us by giving the uh, blood of the sacrifice, by presenting that blood and uh, assuring God that the sacrifice demanded has been given. But the Holy Spirit has done no such thing as that. Therefore, the word intercession in his case means to greatly aid and assist us. He comes to our aid. He helps us. So we must uh, get away completely from the idea of a substitution here. Jesus intercedes as one who is substituted for us as a sacrifice and acts as our high priest. But the Holy Spirit uh, helps us. He comes to our aid and helps us greatly. So when you look at the idea of making intercession for us, if you use the idea he greatly aids and assists us, it would give you the idea that is set forth there. Now the, uh, the, the groaning, when it says, with groanings which cannot be uttered, 
The idea is not that the Spirit makes use of groanings on His part that cannot be uttered. That's not the idea. The Spirit could not possibly be deity and have groanings He could not utter. These are groanings we cannot utter. These are groanings that we have that, like in verse 22, we know that the whole creation groaneth, and uh, not only so, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. You know, you have to go back to that and, and relate that here so that the groanings are those uh, uh, feelings, uh, ideas that we, we sometimes have difficulty expressing to God in prayer. Our heart is filled with feelings and emotions that maybe we can't put into words. And so how do we express that to God? Well, the point that's being made here is that the Spirit has, I mean, it's really a very beautiful idea. It is the idea that when I am praying to God and my mind is filled with those ideas and my emotions and everything and I'm having trouble even putting them into words, I need to know that God knows my mind already because my mind is the product of the Holy Spirit. And he knows that mind that the Holy Spirit produces because he himself designed that mind. So that God knows my mind even better than I know it, because it was designed by him. Now the Spirit creates that mind in me, and he creates that mind in you, so that the Lord knows, so that when I pray to God and have those feelings, I don't need to worry about God knowing what I mean by that, even if I can't put it in the Word. These are the drawings that cannot be uttered. And so my, my feeling about that is exactly that expressed by R.L. Whiteside. And one reason I like Whiteside is because so often he agrees with me. <laughs> and uh, one reason why I like Barnes' commentary on the Holy Spirit, I think Barnes is really, really great. And he agrees with me most of the time. So I like him too. But let me read this quotation from Whiteside. So here's the quotation. So the mind of the Spirit is the mental disposition or mood produced by the Spirit. All that the Gospel contains stirs up the heart of the honest searcher, knows the mental disposition, the feelings, and aspirations thus produced by the Spirit. So I think that that does uh, express it very, very well. The mind of the Spirit is the mental disposition or mood or attitude, I added that part, produced by the Spirit through the teaching and the information he gives us. All that the gospel contains stirs up the heart of the honest searcher, knows the mental disposition, the feelings and aspirations thus produced by the Spirit. So uh, the Spirit's intercession, therefore, is accomplished by the teaching of his revelation. Uh, and, and this is not teaching that the Holy Spirit does some miraculous thing to come to our aid to say the things that we cannot say, but rather that he produces in us the mind or disposition or attitude that God desires. And therefore, when, uh, when I'm praying to God as a result of my yearnings that the Spirit is created within me, then God knows my mind and I can be assured this is an assurance. This is not teaching something that you're supposed to make happen. This is an assurance that we're given that when we are, when we go through the process of becoming a Christian and being taught and then allowing the Spirit's influence to come into us through the teaching that, that He does, then this is going to happen. 
So this is not something you're supposed to make happen. This is something that will happen as you're taught and as you learn. And one of the things that we've emphasized, like yesterday, we talked about the, uh, the beaver cutting a tree down and a man cutting a tree down. The beaver cuts the tree down with his own stuff. He doesn't have to have a weapon, a tool. But a man cuts the tree down with a chainsaw. But nevertheless, though he uses a chainsaw, who's cutting the tree down? It's the man. You wouldn't say, oh, the man, he's not cutting it down because he's using a chainsaw. A lot of people say it's not the Spirit doing it because he's using the Word. Uh Uh-uh, that doesn't make a lick of sense. Not a bit of sense. And it would be as illogical to say that a man is not cutting the tree down because he uses saw as to say it's not the Spirit doing it because he's using the Word. Now, the Spirit works in all sorts of ways throughout the Bible. Sometimes he works directly. He's done a lot of working directly in times past. But the Bible also teaches that the revelation of God is accomplished by the Spirit and thereby provides a tool with which God informs. Now, you know, I was thinking about this a while ago. Um, one, I think a very, very significant passage in connection with the Calvinism thing is Romans 10, where he makes the comment, Whosoever believeth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he says, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now those two statements are found within a few verses of each other in order to make the point that the Jews should not have been surprised that the Gentiles were going to be offered salvation. Because in their own scriptures, the statement had been made, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, of course, I'm putting it the other way. Whosoever believeth, and then whosoever calleth. But then logically speaking, he starts out, Who then can call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they have been sent? And so the whole idea is, who did the sending? Well, whoever did the sending intended for the ultimate thing to be the calling. And it was God who did the sending in order that the hearing might be accomplished, in order that the believing might be accomplished, in order that the calling might be accomplished. So that it is not that he gave the Holy Spirit to everybody so they could be converted. There is no direct operation of the Spirit taught anywhere in the Scripture in, in, uh, in order that someone might be converted. That is never the case. And we're going to look uh, as we go along. We, we will eventually do a little bit of looking at that and, uh, and show that that is so. Uh, as you think about the work of the Holy Spirit, turn a moment to Galatians chapter 5. And there's a, a very beautiful thought here in Galatians chapter 5. It's, uh, the contrast is between the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21 and then the work of the fruit of the Spirit in 22 and 23. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, against such there is no law. All right, now you think about this. In your own mind, I know all of you well. And I know what kind of men you are. I know what kind of minds you have. 
uh, and what kind of attitude you had. And uh, now I know that I've been so happy for Ralph to do the visiting that he's been able to do this week. And Ralph, you know, as you look into your mind and your heart, why have you done that visiting? Well, I have an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'd try to encourage these men. And and what about the sick? The some of the sick that oh, you did that, that that kind of visiting. Uh, I, I feel that's a responsibility of Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, it helps the person that you visit. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you. Right. right. And you're concerned about them. Now see, the reason why that's so is because of the influence the Holy Spirit has had upon you. For years, you have been steeped in the teaching of the Word of God, and it is created in your heart and mind a set of dispositions and attitudes. Now, Jeff, I know I know you. I know how you were converted, and I know that you you know you you gave up a lot to become a Christian. I am very convinced of your uh, convictions. These two guys here, I know what they've been through, a lot that they've been through. And, and Jonathan, you don't have the the long history that I know about these guys, but I have seen you in action. You see, it's like your heart is a garden. Everybody's heart is a garden. Now, in some gardens, the only thing that grows is weeds. Because it has not been properly cultivated, it has not been properly planted. The Spirit is the one who does the planting and the cultivating. He does it by means of the the revelation, the instruction that he has given and that instruction is written, but it may be, uh, at, at one time, it was uh, given orally. Then it was written. And now it is read, and it is taught orally. But it's still the same thing. It's the weapon, it's the tool of the Holy Spirit. And that has cultivated your garden. Your, your mind, therefore, is a garden of the Holy Spirit. And uh, when he, he has planted the impulses and things that come up in your mind. So that when, now like for example, these things that, these people that Ralph has visited this week, the sick, those should be regarded as impulses springing up from the garden in your mind that the Holy Spirit has put there through this teaching. And uh, you, you guys say, we want to know more of the Word of God. We want to come down there and study and prepare ourselves and, and all that you're doing like that. Those are plants growing up coming up out of the soil of your heart, the garden of the Spirit. So I think that is a lovely idea, and what we need to do is when those impulses that the Spirit has generated by what He's planted in our minds, when they come up, we should not squash them. Quench the Spirit. You know, we shouldn't go, no, when it comes up and it's that good impulse, do it, follow it. Follow it, because that's what the Spirit is helping us to do, to have these good things, these good ideas. Now, another thing, uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, I I thought about an experiment like this. I might just, uh, I was thinking, every one of you, I want you just sort of at the moment kind of quiet in your mind and then just look for just an idea, a thought. Whatever it is, just comes to your mind. 
Just try to let a thought come to your mind. I don't care what it is. Maybe what you're going to do or something like that. All right, now somebody volunteer to tell me what your thought was. All right? I got a boat. You got a boat. All right. All right. Now, you see, what produced that thought? Well, I'm not exactly sure of what the train of thought was, but now a lot of people would say, the Lord put that on my heart. Well, no, the fact is that if you just let your mind wander, you can come up with almost anything. I mean, anybody can come up with a thought. And if you come up with a good thought, you can do that. You know, you could come up with a good thought. Uh, I mean, a particularly moral, spiritual thought, you, you could come up with that too. And that doesn't mean that the Lord has miraculously put it upon your heart. It's not necessary to assume that. You can do that without the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. I mean, people do that all the time. So there is no need, but people use that kind of thing to prove that they have a direct operation of the Spirit. That is not necessary to conclude at all. Uh, If that were the thing, I think that we could argue that there are a lot of people who don't have any connection with the Lord at all. They occasionally have some good idea. Did the Lord put it on their heart? Was the Spirit working in them? They have the Holy Spirit, even though they have no connection with God. So, this uh, I think this is an important point. But one of the things that I notice in Scripture, throughout all the Scripture about the Holy Spirit, is that never did He speak to the general population. He never spoke to everybody. Not in the Old Testament. Not in the New Testament. It was always a matter of picking spokesmen and through those spokesmen communicating the will of God to men. The only exception might be regarded as the very first days of creation when mankind was Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel. But very quickly, after those very first uh, few years, then it was always the matter of selecting a few, such as the patriarchs, and through the patriarchs speaking to others. Enoch is a a prophet of God. He's referred to as a prophet of God in the book of Jude. Uh, But God chose spokesmen, and the word was revealed to the spokesmen and then was communicated generally to others. Now that's a pattern throughout the Bible. So we can't say now that God is going to change all that and he's going to give his Holy Spirit to everybody, everybody. And that's part of Pentecostalism. The idea that everybody is going to have a miraculous working or a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's part of that teaching of Calvinism too. That, uh, that direct operation or what's called the first work of grace. And so, uh, but this is not found in Scripture. It is not found in Scripture. Uh, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, how Paul said, but unto us, meaning the inspired men. And he specifies that in Ephesians 3. Remember verses 3 through 5? In verse 5 he says, it was revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And so if ever the Word of God was to be revealed to men generally, then there would be no role for special spokesmen. Turn to another passage or two that we will uh, notice here. Um, turn to Acts 10, Acts chapter 10 and uh, verse 39, that's one of them, and uh, verse 41 also. Acts 10 
39, where Peter says, We are witnesses, meaning we apostles. We are witnesses of all things which he did, because he's bearing testimony to Gentiles, Cornelius, who did not see Jesus. We are witnesses. And then look in verse uh, verses 40 and 41. Jonathan, how about reading Acts 10, 40 and 41? And then God rose up on the third day and showed them all the things. Thus, all the people, but the witnesses were chosen before my God. You dwelt with eight and and after you rose from the dead. All right, so uh, in the resurrection, he was uh, he appeared before chosen witnesses, and so this fits into the pattern. Uh, let me see. I'm looking at another reference. This fits into the pattern of God's choosing special people uh, to whom the Spirit came, and then through them the Word of God was made known. So you could just spend you could spend all kinds of time just finding example after example after example of that in the Old Testament and in the new. So that's just a fact. Now, if you were going to have a prolonged study with somebody on this subject, that might be a thing to do, just to show them. In fact, after you did that a while, you might say, we might save a little time if you could just show me, uh, if you know of a place where God just spoke to everybody generally through the Holy Spirit. And there isn't one. So after you have made your point, then you might do that and help them to see, well, there, there isn't one. There isn't any passage like that. Now, a little bit later, we're going to look at some, uh, some more examples in the book of Acts, and we'll, we'll look at some of those things. But right now, what we have done is we have looked at what the Holy Spirit does. And so having looked at the various things the Holy Spirit does in his work, we're making the point that he has never just spoken generally to everybody, miraculously. He has done that through the gospel which has been revealed, which has been proclaimed to everyone. And if you look at the pattern, uh, like in John 14, John 15, John 16, what was the plan of Jesus there? That the apostles, right, that the Spirit would come upon the apostles. Now the next step in that thing, what were the apostles commanded to do? That's right. That's right. That's right. And to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and that's what they that's what they did. And remember in Mark sixteen and then verses seventeen through twenty, that's what they did. So there's the pattern. So that the plan of God was to use the Holy Spirit to reveal his will and these other things we've talked about. And through that revelation to accomplish the, the purpose that he had. And when the New Testament was completed, the testimony of the apostles and prophets had been given. And you remember uh, yesterday our talking about, could you confirm today, even if you could do a miracle, could, would your miracle confirm what Peter said? No. Right. So that the only purpose for confirmation in us today would be, and Dennis, I remember you were the one that stated it, would be if we what? Yeah, if we were saying the new thing, if we were revealing something, then we would need to confirm. But since we are not revealing anything new, and remember what we said about that? If we, what, what was it then? Because if it's different... It's condemned, and if it's not different, then why? We don't need it. It's already once for all delivered to the saints. 
and everything. I think that 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 and 10 really uh, have a part to this. It's not the only thing, but I do think it is an important uh, passage before we enter into a rather uh, detailed study of this point. And that has to do with the cessation of miracles. We're, uh, this is going to be a passage we look at briefly, and then we're going to really give that a going over, the idea of the cessation of miracles. So here in 1 Corinthians 13, first of all, let's remember that this is right between 12 and 14. Now that shouldn't take any stretch of the intellect to remember. All right. But what is in 12 and what is in 14? So the context is very definitely spiritual gifts. And the idea there's a competition here among the uh, Corinthians about which spiritual gift is the most desirable to have because which one will make the biggest show and all of that. And so he's been emphasizing that we should understand that whatever the gift is, the spirit's the same, and we should appreciate the gift and not set anybody at naught depending on what their gift is. It is a gift of the spirit. All the gifts of the spirit should be valued and appreciated. Some of the gifts are more valuable than others in, in that they, uh, they do more good. And so in verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, But desire earnestly the greater gifts, and moreover a most excellent way show I unto you. What he's going to do therefore in 13 is to explain to them that it, even better than the idea of, well, you should, you should value the more, the more uh, beneficial gifts. But I'm going to show you an even better way. And that is the way of love. That if we really have the love that we need to have to one another, then, uh, then the, the handling of the gifts that we have and the conduct of our lives and everything, it will be as it ought to be. And so he starts off using what example? 13 there. The speaking in tongues. And what about verse 2? Right. And so he knows all mysteries and all knowledge and uh, mentions uh, the gift of faith so as to remove mountains. And in verse 3, it's not miracles, but doing things, you know, charity, giving my gifts to feed the poor and so on. Then in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, uh, 8, he's talking about qualities, but in verse 8, he says, love never fails. Now, in contrast, but whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. Now, the tongues and uh, the, the, uh, the, the prophecies, the tongues and the knowledge, all have to do with the part knowledge. The, the whole idea of the tongues, the whole idea of the prophecy, the idea of knowledge here is not the idea of knowledge in the general sense of just knowing things, because then we will be known even as we were known. It's not the idea of doing away totally with the whole idea of knowledge, but it's the process of knowledge coming, increasing our knowledge, gaining more knowledge, having more knowledge revealed. This is the process of revelation that it is referring to here in connection with the tongues and the prophecies and the knowledge. These things will cease, but love will never fail because we know in part and we prophesy in part. That's the verse that particularly shows that we're looking here at part knowledge, part prophecy. 
So it's incomplete. It's being revealed. This is a part of the process of God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. But in verse 10, but when he who is perfect is come, it doesn't say he who, that which. And do you notice Jesus is totally not in this context? What is in this context is we know in part. We prophesy in part. So you've got the part what? Part knowledge. The prophecies, tongues, that which is associated with an incomplete situation. So that, so that knowledge, the knowledge is incomplete. It is, it is imperfect. But when it is perfect, when it is complete, uh, then that which is in part shall be done away. So uh, I think that this is making the point that when the full revelation is, or when the revelation is full, then the uh, processes of tongues and prophesying and confirmation, things like that, uh, will will come to an end. Now, you said confirmation means three Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and that, that's a pretty broad context. And that's right. Now, let me also warn you about when you're studying with Pentecostals, there are some things that I, w- I don't think it'd be wise to jump in and use that as my first argument. And this probably wouldn't be a good one to use as your first argument. And there are some of the passages that would not be, it would be more difficult to convince them, you know, of what you're trying to say. There'd be other passages and other ways that you could be more convincing. Once you have kind of gotten their uh, willingness to think about things and consider an alternative, then this one, I think, would be a good one for them to look at. But you just have to understand that some of them are, some passages you're going to use are going to be more forceful, more simple than others. And I don't think it's a good idea to start with one that you can have just have a good argument about, you know. So save that one until they have made a little progress. I'm convinced that's what this is talking about. But uh, it might be more debatable than some of the others that we're going to look at. All right, so what, what we want to do now is really turn our attention to the proof that I believe is in the Scriptures that miracles would cease. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage we've studied to show that point. But now we're going to show uh, from the Scriptures that uh, this would be the case. And uh, this, I don't know if we'll get through with it today, but uh, we are, we're going to work on it and see how much progress we can make. All right, now, as we begin this, I want you to have firmly in mind the idea of John 14:26, John 15:26. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. And John 16:13. You all remember those verses as being where Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, turn to Acts 1:5. And as you're turning, remember that this is Jesus saying that the Spirit is going to come to the apostles and uh, going to give them, uh, bring to, uh, to them the remembrance of all things he has said, and is going to guide them into all the truth. So let's remember firmly that background as we read Acts 1 and verse 5. Yep. Well, that's part of verse 4, which he said he had heard from me, for John baptized with water, is usually baptized with the Holy Spirit, not for the Now Jesus is promising somebody here that they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, you wouldn't even have to read any more verses than that one to show that he's promising someone. 
But to find out who the someone is, we have to look at the context before. So who is that? All right. Right. Verse 2. All right. So here he is gathering with the apostles. Was there anyone else there? No. No. If there was, there's nothing said. I cannot predicate anything upon what is not said there. So I can't bring anybody into it. He appears to the apostles whom he's chosen. And he tells them that you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8 he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. So notice this is a promise. This is not saying this is something you are to generate. He's saying, well, what's he telling them to do to get this? Huh? Show up. Wait. Wait. Okay? No, no, no human being is going to be involved in giving this to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's reminding them. That's right. That's right. That's a good point. All right, now let's go on over into the rest of one. And we remember that Peter stood up leading the group. There was a multitude of the brethren. And this is in verse 15. Notice how many there were. Multitude of people gathered together, about 120. And he leads them then in choosing someone to take the place of Judas. And he mentions that, uh, the qualifications in verses 21 and 22 about an apostle. Now, another thing, while we're on that, I want to give you a point about Mormons. Uh, I'm going to uh, infringe on Greg's territory a little bit. One, uh, one of the things that a Mormon uh, may do, if, and especially a well-qualified Mormon, they may say, it would go like this, uh, uh, Dan, now, do I understand that as a uh, as a Christian, you are teaching that that we are to be the New Testament Church? Yes. And so that means that we are to imitate the New Testament Church. And uh, the New Testament Church had apostles. Do you have apostles? <laughs> but you'd have to show how, wouldn't you? And that's right, but be prepared for that. But I think that one of the really good arguments for that is that here there was an apostle chosen to replace Judas. But in all the scripture, this is the only apostle chosen to replace a previous apostle. There was no system whatever provided by the Lord for choosing an apostle to replace another apostle. This is one. Now, why? I don't pretend to know all the reasons why Jesus said, I want there to be twelve. And so one of them is gone. I want there to be twelve. But I believe he did. And I think that they chose this one because of that. So here was the way it was done. And he was numbered with them. And there's never any idea that Matthias simply didn't have the powers the other had. You know, there's nothing like that. 
But there is no system provided in all the New Testament for the choosing of another one. And when Paul was made an apostle, see, this was before the death of James in Acts 12, because he became an apostle in mind, so he was not chosen an apostle to take somebody's place. And when James died, there was never any of the, no, not the slightest mention that any apostle should be chosen to take his place. So I think that would be a very good way to point that out, you know, that if there was to be an apostolic succession, then why was there not a successor chosen when, a, when James was killed? I mean, when Judas killed himself, let's pick another one. James put to death. Never. Never. Would it also not be Yeah, yeah. And and that may be, rather than the number 12, uh, it may be more the idea of fulfilling this prophecy. Okay, now then, look at the close of the chapter. At the close of the chapter, we find that Matthias was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, as we continue along here, you you need to, to be aware of the fact that when you're talking about Greek and you're talking about antecedents in Greek, Antecedents in Greek might not follow quite the same pattern that we do. In other words, you might have a pa- you might have a Greek passage where to find the true antecedent of the he or the they. You might have to skip back before what would appear to be the nearest noun that could be your antecedent. But still, that is a principle that really needs to be considered. So when you're considering this, notice that the last thing mentioned. All right, here they are. They put forth two, and one is called Joseph Barsabas Justice, and the other is Matthias. And they choose, the Lord chooses Matthias. The lot falls upon Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. So in verse 2, now when the day of Pentecost was come, they were they. Who's the they? Well, let's, let's, let's be open about this. What would the two possibilities be? I think everybody ought to be able to agree on what would the two and only two possibilities be. Right. So either uh, the 120 or 12 apostles with Matthias. That's our two possibilities. So the thing to do now is to examine the evidence as we go along and see which does it seem to be. First argument is that the nearest antecedent would be the apostles. But we're not hinging our whole argument on that. Not by any means. But as a part of the arguments that we can muster, I think it is to be noted. All right, so in verse 4, the Holy Spirit falls, and then in verse 4, what does it say? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues that the Spirit gave them utterance. So who's the they all? Either, either the 120 or the 12 apostles. All right, in verse 5, it describes the um, people in Jerusalem. These were all Jews and proselytes. In verse 6, when this sound was heard. Now this would be the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. They came together and they were confounded because every man heard them speaking in his own language. Now here's another thing. As you're looking along through here, look at the words being used for language or tongue. 
So in verse 6, what does your text have for language? Alright, so let's, let's observe that as we go along. They were all amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are not all these that speak what? Now, apply that thought to the fact that this is the 120. Now, if you have 12 apostles, that's a much more limited number, and they were all of Galilee. But how, how likely is it that of this 120 that were there, it did not include a single person? No Mary, no Martha, no Lazarus, no Nicodemus, no Joseph, I mean, no uh, Joseph of Arimathea, no Zacchaeus. Yeah, they're in Jerusalem. And they're there for Pentecost. But there's not a person there, not a person in that 120 from Judea. Now again, that's not a conclusive argument. But we're, we're building a case. And we have to put that with it. Now here is another thing for you to note in connection with this. Look over in Acts 13. This is a uh, I think a very, very impressive uh, thing to note. Now let me see exactly where I want to notice this. Alright, read, uh, Jeff, how about reading 30 and 31 of Acts 13? But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who were now his witnesses to the people. In other words, these are apostles. That's his witnesses. Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses. These are the witnesses. These who speak are all Galileans. So that, we'll have to say, that would not support the idea of the 120 nearly as well as it would support the idea of the 12 apostles. All right, let's tuck that away and keep that in our minds as we continue looking at the evidence. What, what word do you have in verse 8 now for language? Language. All of you have that? Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Now then it names the people that are there from all over. Read in verse 11. Uh, Dan? Now one thing, you have a context here, languages and tongues. Therefore, it's the same thing. And the tongue is the idea of our own language wherein we were born, so that the miracle was not speaking in a nonsense language or some kind of celestial language that nobody knows. Gibberish. These were tongues that were spoken by somebody but the apostles were not trained in those tongues. They should not have been able to speak those tongues, and the people there are amazed. Now, another thing people will raise the question about, they'll say, was the miracle here in the ears of the people, or was it in the tongues of the apostles? And there is a way to know. There's a way to solve that. In other words, was it fixed so that the people were just automatically hearing in their own language? So the apostles would have been just speaking in their own language, you know, but God was sort of translating it so that everybody that heard it was hearing it in his own language. There are people that think that and, and wonder that. 
But it doesn't say that the miracle was in the hearing. It says they, the miracle was in the speaking. They spake with other tongues. And one thing that would bring that out would be this. What was the reaction in verse 13? Look at that reaction, Dennis. Other doctrines that they are full of new Now, the only thing that would give rise to that idea would be that if you were there in this crowd and you're listening to these men up there, and well, there's one of them that you understand him, but the rest of them, it, I don't, I don't understand what they're saying. So, ha ha ha, they're drunk. But if the miracle had been that everybody's automatically hearing in his own language, then there would have been no grounds for anyone to even imagine, even to make it up and say, oh, they're drunk. So I think that clearly, clearly the miracle is the speaking. And even though you've got 17 or 18 nationalities there, 12 languages would easily have covered all the languages that would have been spoken by those people. So there's not a problem on that. Well, how do they deal with the faculty of interpreters? That's a good, that's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is a very good point. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, it mentions the gift of interpretation. So, and 14, if there is no interpreter, then let him keep silent. And I think that's exactly right. So, to me, there's no question about it. But that, that would be an excellent argument to use to show that. All right, here we come now. Uh, Dennis, I'll go ahead and let you read verse 14. But Peter standing up with the eleven. Oh, whoop, wait a minute now. What are our two theories? It's either the, uh, either the twelve or the hundred and twenty. If it's the hundred and twenty, Dennis, how should it read? But it says standing up with the eleven. Okay, now go ahead. Raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. And when he says, These are not drunken, as ye suppose, to whom is he referring? The other eleven. The other eleven. And verse 10, for these men, and part of the class of that Women. These men are not drunken, as you suppose. These men, these are the ones doing the speaking. Peter stands up with the eleven. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit at all with 120. So you see, as you go along, the evidence just accumulates. And I think this is a very powerful development in the evidence right here. But that's not all. Not by any means. Now, in that prophecy of Joel that he quotes, oh, and by the way, you know, there's a perspective to have on this Acts 2 sermon. When you preach on this, you need to be careful to really think it afresh. Because sometimes we just follow right in the little pattern that's been given so often. But like, uh, like look in verse 12, Jeff. How about reading verse 12 again? And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Do you realize that this whole sermon is going to be an answer to that question? It, it is. It's specifically an answer to that question. What meaneth this? It's going to be the idea, how 
has this happened? How could it be? Now, let me just show you how you pull that together. First of all, you have the prophet Joel. This is not, these men are not drunken, as you suppose. This is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. So this whole thing, the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pull forth of my spirit on all flesh. Here's a prophecy saying all flesh. Does all flesh here mean every single human being? No. How does he break it down into all flesh? First, there'd be what? Uh, your sons and your daughters. The male and female. And young men shall see visions, old men. Young and old. And men servants and maid servants. Bond and free. Uh, see, that's the all flesh. All flesh is defined in the context as being men and women, old and young, bond and free. So there will be nobody who is excluded because of their station from receiving the Holy Spirit. But it is not a promise that everybody is going to receive the Holy Spirit in some miraculous way. Now the pouring forth of the Spirit here is miraculous because he says what you're seeing today, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. There is a sense in which the Spirit is given to all men but not miraculously as this is talking about. So this, this, this has to be referring to the miraculous things because it is applied by Peter to the things that are happening this very day. And as it goes on down, in verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord come, the great and notable day. And it shall be that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the, uh, the idea, we start out with the pouring of the Spirit. And... He says this. So that begins the process. Now we go over here to the uh, signs of destruction and war and so on. We have a period of about 40 years involved in the fulfillment of this because those signs of the sun being darkened and all that, that is in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a part of this, uh, of this prophecy here in Joel. So it's beginning this period with the pouring forth of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit begins this period that Joel has prophesied and uh, the signs of destruction and warfare and so on, burning and so on like that, it's a part of the prophecy. So the prophecy is not totally fulfilled on this day. But what you're seeing today is what Joel was telling about. But it's not all Joel was telling about. It would include these other things as well. So uh, just giving you that. But now remember, uh, look down in verse... Uh, as you look down through 22 through 24 about Jesus being crucified, um, there's, a, there's an outline. I teach all the uh, sixth graders. 
this outline. This outline was used again and again and again by the apostles and others. The basic outline, the core of their sermon was, you slew him. God raised him up. Number three, we are witnesses. And when he went away, like Peter preaching to Cornelius in his household, it's they slew him. God raised him up. We are witnesses. So that was the basic outline. And so that basic outline is right here. So he quotes then from uh, David about the resurrection. And uh, he, he says, David prophesied this. Now, he wasn't talking about himself. Now, look in verse 32. And let's read, uh, uh, Jeff, how about reading 32 and 33? This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So, how did this Holy Spirit come? What meaneth this? Who poured forth the Spirit? Jesus. So, you see, they're asking, how did this happen? How did this come about? And so he's explaining that it was Jesus who poured forth the Holy Spirit. Now, look in verse uh, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter, and what? But what should this be if it's the 120? See? Said unto Peter and the 119. Huh? And the 119. But he said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles. Now, the next thing to do is uh, look down in verse 42. Let's read that one, Dan. And he continued to sit back in the apostle's doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. All right, let's read verse 43. Go ahead and read 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders the signs were done to the apostles. Now, in verse 42, I would wonder, well, what about 120? And what about verse 43? If the apostles all received the same Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, then why weren't many wonders and signs done through the 120? Look in chapter 3 and see who's doing things there. The miracles. Mm -hmm. Peter and John. All right, look in chapter uh, 4 and read verse 33. All right, look in verse 12, Jeff, of 5, of five Acts 5.12. Five, and at the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all one for the psalmist's portrait. All right, now, if the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 1 through 4, fell upon the 120, and they manifested it by speaking in tongues, what would you? What else would you have expected that 120 to be able to do? Uh, what else were the 12 able to do? Miracles. 
you would have expected the 120 to be able to do those miracles as well. But we don't find them doing it. Instead, every passage that specifies who was doing it, it was the apostles. Never the 120. Only an apostle does a miracle. Not, not any hundred and whoever. <laughs> yes, they, let me say, be the hundred and, uh, be the hundred and eight besides the apostles, wouldn't it? Alright, in chapter six, look in chapter six. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, you can make the point that if the others did it, there's not a thing said about it. We can't put our faith in the Exactly. No. That's right. So, uh, there in chapter... Now, what we're doing, uh, when we began with Acts 1-5, we began on a process... Uh, that we're going to be continuing to look at for a while here in the book of Acts, dealing with who possessed the spirit, uh, miraculous powers, and so on. That's what we'll be looking at. So we're, uh, we're about out of time today, I think, aren't we? What time did we start? All right, let me look, because it, it'd be good if we had a little more time. Right, we have two minutes before, uh, before the hour's gone. Look at this. Look at this one more thing. Then you take in the first uh, the first six verses of Acts six. One of the things it says is that uh, look out seven men of good report, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And uh, in those verses before verses one through six, uh, you find a mention of made uh, a couple of times, like verse three. You find you find it in verse five, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. I don't believe this is talking about miraculous power here. I think it's talking about the Spirit in the sense of uh, uh, filling us with the right attitudes, with uh, righteous ideas and thoughts and so on. So it can mean that, but in this context, the contrast is between men who were possessed of the leadership and guidance of the Spirit to help them to be the kind of men they ought to be, but miraculous powers is not possessed by, or are not possessed by them until the apostles' hands are laid upon them. So in verse uh, 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands upon them. Now as we go along studying here and on into chapter 8, we will find that it is specified that it was through the laying on of apostolic hands that the Holy Spirit was given. So I'll wait there to strengthen the point. But here they laid their hands on these seven men. And it's immediately after this that we read of the first man doing a miracle other than an apostle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question. Based on what you just said with respect to Acts 6 and verse uh, 3. Yes, and verse 5. Back in Acts chapter 4, mm-hmm. when Peter and John are Mm-hmm. 
think it could be either one. This is the reason why I asked this question, because when they come back and they reported to them all mm-hmm. that, so they, you know, only Peter John was there for the threat. Right, 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 for, right. For, right. for, for, for the, the lecture of the school. Right. So we're looking at the two days that they told them, here's what happened to us, and uh, they made part of it as we see in the mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. Which I mentioned in that first one. Right. And even if it could have been a larger group of apostles, I mean a large group of disciples, if the apostles were a part of that group at the time, then this could easily have happened to them. Because this is not saying somebody did a miracle. This is, okay, I see, they were all filled with the Spirit. With the, no, no, no. Right, 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 right. You can't, you can't hinge your case on that. You know, Pentecostal could make an argument here, but he could, there's no way he can hinge his case on it. Now, if it said, and they all spake the word of God with other tongues, that'd be different. Yeah, that's right. But this says with boldness. And so the miracle that occurred there doesn't, doesn't say the place was shaken, you know. That doesn't mean that they, it doesn't say the apostles did the miracle. It implies that God did the miracle of shaking the place. I mean, can you see that? I mean, that's not, I'm not, you see, I'm not making that up. The place was shaken. Well, that didn't mean that Peter went over and raised his hands and shook the place. You know? So, this, this is not an exception to the clear references because you say, oh, well now that, see, that's the multitude that's able to do miracles. Well, where else are they doing any miracles? By now, the number of men came to be about 5,000. You'd figure there's somebody, at, uh, you know, with great power gave all the people their witness. No, only the apostles. Only the apostles. Until Acts 6, when they lay their hands on these seven men. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and stop there, and tomorrow we'll take up our thought, our argument there, and uh, proceed building our case. About this. I don't want to get too far ahead of your, your outline, but when what happened in Acts 10, mm-hmm. Peter said that's all just the beginning. Right. You know, he could refer back to anything other than what happened. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Not that far. Right. That's right. And I, I've I'm used what I hate for. But I, I've used that uh, that that very case. Uh, like in four, you know, if you want to try to argue that the last before is is all all the people. But you're right, he can't, uh, he doesn't point it. And you know what else? He doesn't even point it back to uh, the laying on of hands in Acts 6. He does not point it back there. And like you say, as on us at the beginning, so that the, uh, the falling of the Spirit upon the household of Cornelius had no, uh, no parallel except in the apostles back there in the beginning. Yeah, that's that, exactly. Cornelius really works well when you talk about the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Right. Right, 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 right. So, um, 
The thing, a lot of the big problem people have with the baptism of the Spirit of Cornelius, they try to argue it's something else because they don't want Cornelius to be an apostle. Because they think it was Holy Spirit baptism that made the apostles apostles. And it was not the Holy Spirit baptism that made them apostles. It was the commission of the Lord. The Holy Spirit baptism merely enabled them to do their work as apostles. But it wasn't the Holy Spirit that made them apostles. Jesus made them apostles. And then he gave them the Spirit in order to carry out their work. In the case of Cornelius, it it had a different purpose, a very, very... uh, emphatic emphasis uh, in a very emphatic way that God had of saying, now this is what I want, do you get it? (laughs) That's right. And that's something else that we want to do some looking at as we go on through 8 and 10. I want to make that point. 